right, good morning, Transit Church. How y'all doing? Good, good. Amen and amen. Well, hey, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick. Uh, I feel like I'm really loud, which is great, because you're going to need to hear me this morning. Because we're in Acts 7, 1 through 53. Yes, you heard that correctly. 53 verses, baby, that we're diving into. This is Stephen's speech. Uh, I asked guest services to pull a bunch of espresso shots in the multi-purpose room so you guys can track with us. So if you need some uh, extra caffeine, go to the multi-purpose room. Just kidding, we don't have espresso. Uh, we're not that kind of a church. Uh, but uh, turn, open your Bibles to Acts, uh, Acts 7, 1 through 53. So what we're seeing, if you were here last week, you know the context of this, uh, of this sermon, this text uh, that we're in today is this, is that Stephen, the non-apostle, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and if you're full of the Holy Spirit, then you're full of grace and you're full of power. He is doing uh, what the apostles were doing, yet he was a non-apostle. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He was operating in signs and wonders. People were getting healed and delivered and saved. And then he was also sharing in the suffering of the apostles. Like we saw last week, persecution uh, arose, opposition arose to Stephen. And yet again, we find ourselves in another trial in Acts before the Sanhedrin. And so that's uh, the context of our uh, text today. And Stephen, the, the, the charges that are raised against Stephen, we looked at last week. But we need to go back and look at those charges because all 53 verses that we're going to be looking at today are Stephen's response to those accusations. And this is the accusation that was sent against Stephen in Acts 6, 13 through 14 before the Sanhedrin. This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So that's the indictment. Stephen here, he's a blasphemer. He's uh, blaspheming against God's holy temple and God's holy law. And he's saying Jesus is going to, you know, change the customs that Moses gave to us and tear down this holy place. That's the accusation. And the rest of our text is how Stephen responds. And what's fascinating to me when I first dove into this text earlier this week was I'm going, Stephen, why was this your response? Basically what he does is he shares the entire story of the Old Testament scriptures, right? Like the entire story of the scriptures, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, okay? He, he kind of, you know, anyways. So, but, but what's interesting for us to realize is this. I had this thought come to mind. Who here loves football, the game of football? Anyone here excited about August, September rolling around football? Sorry, I, I'm pumped. I didn't play football, obviously, by my height and weight. Uh, but uh, I love watching football. I love watching other people destroy each other. Anyways, um, What's unique about professional football is that you can challenge a play. And say uh, the referee, the zebras, you know, uh, as they'll be referred to the rest of this illustration, the zebras, they might make a call. And, and for the sake of this sermon illustration, the Sanhedrin are the referees, okay? The referees might make a call about saying, hey, that was a touchdown when it wasn't a touchdown, or that was a pass, uh, a catch when it wasn't a catch, or that was a foul when it wasn't a foul. And so you can call a challenge. And when you throw, when you challenge the play, you're saying zebra, your interpretation of past events is skewed. Get back in the replay booth. You need to get back in the booth and you need to watch the game film because you misinterpreted the call. And so what Stephen is doing before the Sanhedrin is he's saying, he's saying, take a journey with me through our Old Testament, our scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God himself. Take a journey with me. I'm going to bring you referees to the, the replay booth and I'm going to show you that you've completely misinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures, and you've missed the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus, in those Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's doing. That's his defense. So uh, we're going to need uh, some prayer today because we've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to not read all 53 verses. I'm going to uh, you know, not talk about the Joseph narrative, all that stuff. So if you want to read that on your, your own, you can. But let's pray, and then we will, uh, we will dive in. 
So Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, God, just humbly, full of thanksgiving that we're here, and we're here covered, our sins covered, our filth cleansed by the precious blood of the Lamb. We're sons and daughters of the living God. We have the presence of God as our inheritance, both now and forevermore. And so we pause and we give glory and adoration to you, Jesus, for purchasing everything for us, God. Thank you. I pray that, Jesus, that you'd be magnified. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd uh, open up eyes and ears and hearts to see and to know and to love and to respond to the good news of Jesus today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that he would increase and I would decrease up here. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to dive in. Verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read these and then... Uh, We'll go from there. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he made a mistake and he handed the microphone to Stephen. And then Stephen says this. <laughs> Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, and promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke, this, uh, God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I would judge the nation they serve and then watch this, Watch this, if you're not paying attention. Verse 7, and after they shall come out, after they're delivered, they will come out and worship me in this place. Worship me in this place, okay? And verse 8, he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Take a deep breath. We made it to this first eight verses. Great job. At this point in Stephen's response, the Sanhedrin are nodding their heads, saying, yes. We all agree on the Abrahamic covenant. Why are you telling us this, right? And the key to every debate, if you've taken debate, I took debate when I was too young to remember how essential it was and like when I was like a, in junior high. Anyways, the key to, to opening up any debate is you have to define terms. You have to come to, to agreement on what you're actually debating, right? Some of you who are married, you know this, right? The wife says, make sure you put that cup in the right place. Well, we need to define what is the right place. For me, it's the kitchen countertop. But the right place might be for the dishwasher for you. Let's define terms. What is the right place, all right? And so uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the history of God's people. Genesis 3 through 11 is the fall of man and this cascading uh, uh, waterfall of the, de the depravity of humanity. And then Gen Genesis 12, God enters the scene. He appears to pagan Abraham in pagan Mesopotamia, and he gives him a promise. He gives him a compass point first, he says, head west, as he says, go, and I'll show you where you're going to go. Pack up, leave your kindred, family, job, you know, leave that, bring obviously your immediate family, and just go to the land. I'll show you the promised land. And the Lord pledges his covenant faithfulness to Abraham and to his descendants. And the promise, the Abrahamic covenant of the promise that God gave him was a lot of things, but primarily it was a people, a great people will come from your descendants, a nation, and then also a land, um, and then also a blessing of God, God's reign and rule over those people. And through your descendants, Abraham, 
The entire nations will be blessed. Through this nation that will flow through your lineage, all nations will be blessed. So, so Sanhedrin, yes, saying that, you know, I agree with you, Stephen. Why are you saying this? But key verse that Stephen's going to be pointing us to and pointing the Sanhedrin to was this. Sanhedrin, what was the whole point of the covenant with Abraham? What's the chief end? What's the purpose? And if we look at verse 7, we learn about both the covenant and then also the exodus, the deliverance, is this. Verse 7, I will judge the nation they serve, said God. And then watch this. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. God redeems us for relationship. God makes a covenant of love uh, in the Hebrew, chesed, steadfast, never-ending, eternal love for the people that he has pledged his promise to. And that's the story of the Old Testament scriptures, is God's covenant faithfulness to a people who have their backs turned to him repeatedly. And God is faithful, and God is faithful, and God is faithful. Why? Because he's hold his, he, he holds his promises. He keeps his vows. He keeps his vows. But he does that for covenantal love. The whole cry of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is, I will be your God and you will be my people. I, I am redeeming you to relate to me with worship. And what worship is, is exactly like Rebecca was saying up here. Worship is not just principles or places. Worship is adoration for a person. So much so, so much love and adoration that you would bring $30,000 worth of perfume and anoint the feet of your coming redeemer. The feet that are about to be nail scarred pierced for your transgressions, redeeming that woman out of harlotry and prostitution and, and saving her and redeeming her, weeping, covering, anointing his feet. That's worship, a person, a person. And what the, what the Sanhedrin were guilty of was religious idolatry. And it's very, it's very scary, okay? What the Sanhedrin were guilty of was this. They were worshiping the principles and the place and they had their backs turned to the person. That's what religious idolatry is. And it's so dangerous because nobody knows when they're doing it, right? It's so dangerous that we can be so close to the living God of the universe and have our hearts a million miles away. Our hearts a million miles away. With the, the, listen, for the indictment that, that they gave to Stephen, they never once mentioned God. It was the temple. It was the land. It was, the, it was the, the law. That's what they were all, all in a tissy fit about. They didn't care. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. Resisting the Holy Spirit. And what this looks like today is we can come to church, right? We can come to church and be about the, the building. This isn't the house of God. It's not. What we've been seeing through Acts is God's people, the church, the people where his spirit dwells inside of them. We're the temple of God, the people the ecclesia. So whether we're gathering here or out there doing outreach, that we're the house of God, the place where his glory dwells, the living stones stacked upon one each other, one, one another, where God dwells with us, right? That's what Jesus accomplished for us. He poured out his spirit so that we could dwell in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the, the first fruits, the, the, the earnest money deposit of our inheritance, the presence of God forever, right? And so that's the scariest thing about religious idolatry is that we can be so close and our hearts can be so far and we get good things out of order. That's what idolatry is, is getting good things out of order. So we, we have a, a high view of the scriptures here at the transit, right? But listen, you can, and this is, I'm guilty of this. You can go to the scriptures and completely miss the author of the scriptures, right? 
you can come here and you can love singing. You can love the community. You can love the fellowship. But then the, 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 the invitation today, the question I want to pose to us, but do we love our Savior? Is that why we're gathered here? To loose our praise, not letting the rocks, the rocks who are silent and dead, get more, get more praise out of their mouths than ours to our Savior who's redeemed us forever, right? So that's the danger of religious idolatry is we're all blinded by, and listen, I was, I was a seminarian, and something that I saw when I was studying Hebrew was like, Hebrew is like Christian Sudoku, all right? And you're studying that? And my quiet times, I was having so much fun because I'm, I'm kind of a theological nerd. And uh, I would open my quiet, quiet time. I'm going to read my Hebrew Bible and just like exegete the Hebrew work on my stuff. And, I was, and then the Lord, the Lord convicted me and goes, do you love Christian Sudoku or do you love me? What, what's the purpose of us going to the scriptures? So we did a whole sermon series on abiding in Christ. But this is what Jesus Christ says in John 5. Jesus Christ himself says this. He says, you diligently search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, not realizing that they testify about me. So we can diligently search the scriptures, not realizing that they're testifying about a person who's died to save us and bring us back to his heart, bring us back home. And then Jesus says this, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying there is that the revelation of salvation, the revelation of Jesus in the scriptures is about a person. And this is to springboard us up to salvation and to adoration for King Jesus, the person. The Bible doesn't save anyone. King Jesus does. The living Jesus seated at the right hand of the father. Salvation is in his name. We love the scriptures. It's God's revelation of his heart and of his son, but it's Jesus who saves the resurrected savior, okay? And so the Sanhedrin, they flipped it. It was all about the rules and the place, the principles and the place, and they missed the person. And then uh, we shift gears here and we got verses 22 through 38 to cover here. Let's dive on in. We're back. Uh, Here we go. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would not understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, "Who who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled. He became an exile in Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. One of the biggest understatements probably in scripture. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of covenant, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses, there it is. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. For I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and I, Yahweh, have come down, manifested my presence to deliver them. And now come and I will send you to Egypt. And this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man delivered them. He led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, 
talking of Jesus, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. So two things that stick out here. One, what Stephen is getting at is the story of the Old Testament scriptures is God's steadfast covenantal love for and pursuit of his people. And the way and the way we see in the Old Testament, God loves and delivers and uh, stays faithful to his people is he raises up leaders. He raises up deliverers. He raises up and anoints prophets and priests and kings to save and redeem and rescue his people. Look at verse 34, the call of Moses, right? Burning bush, take off your sandals, the place you're standing is uh, holy ground. Because listen, what Stephen's getting out with that too is that um, Yahweh, his presence was with Abraham in pagan Mesopotamia, was with Joseph in Egypt, was with Moses in Egypt. Wherever God's people are, that's where his presence is. His presence cannot be contained in a brick and mortar building is what Stephen is getting at here. So that's why he included that detail. Remove your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. But then the Lord says this, I, Yahweh, I've seen the affliction of my people. And then he says, I, Yahweh, have come to deliver them. And at this point, Moses is probably saying, sweet, thank you, thank you, God. Like, yes, deliver us. It's great. I'm going to pop popcorn. I'm going to watch you work. And then, what is, and then what does God do? He says, he looks at Moses. He says, now you come and you're going to deliver my people. I'm going to deliver my people through your hands, right? And Moses was just a shadow of the deliverer where Christ was the substance. Moses was the shadow of Christ who was to come, the appointed ruler and deliverer of God's people. And what's the correlation? At this point in, the sermon, at this point in Stephen's sermon, his response is Sanhedrin are connecting the dots. They're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I think what Stephen's getting at here is he's putting us in the story. He's putting us in the story. And we think we're Moses. We think we're Abraham. We think we're the heroes. And he's saying we're actually the villains. That's what he's saying. He's putting us in the story. And the second thing, the first thing we see is God's covenant faithfulness to his people by raising up uh, mighty deliverers that he calls and appoints and sends to his people. But then secondly, Stephen is saying, take off the lovey-dovey vision that you have of the Old Testament scriptures of the people of God and see it for what it is. The second pattern we see in the Old Covenant scriptures, Old Testament, is this. The continual rejection of God's people to the rescuers that their Lord sends their way. Their Lord sends their way. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? It was this man that God sent as both ruler and redeemer. They spit in Moses' face. Like, listen, the insanity of the Exodus narrative is this, is that these people were in bondage to slavery in Egypt, and, and Yahweh, through Moses, brings about some crazy stuff, right? Like, they had front row seats, front row seats to the best show on earth, signs and wonders, right? Um, the Lord himself through Moses rolled out a royal red carpet on the floor of the Red Sea for them to shift from bondage slavery to freedom and liberty, right? And if I was there and I, you know, and I was a slave in Egypt, I don't know if I put myself in the narrative, right? And I see the Egyptian army coming, but I see the seas that are parted and the red carpet that the Lord has rolled out. I'm moonwalking back saying, peace, Egypt, like, like, let's go, right? And then moments later, if you read Exodus, the people start complaining and they look at Moses and they go, did you bring us out here to kill us? It was better for us in Egypt 
than it is here. They spit in the Redeemer's face. And this is what we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures is God sends prophet after prophet uh, to, to call the people back to the heart of their father. Repent, stop worshiping false gods, stop being idolaters, worship Yahweh, and they stone them and they kill them, right? That's the trajectory we see this common theme and the Sanhedrin here connecting the dots. Uh, I'm sure at this point they're realizing Stephen's placing them in the narrative, not as the heroes that they thought they were, but they weren't. And then the connection that Stephen is making is that just like God sent Moses to rescue his people, God sent his one and only begotten son, the truer and better Moses, the promised Messiah foretold of in our scriptures to redeem and rescue Israel. And instead of welcoming him and worshiping him and adoring him, you all slaughtered him. And the holy law, the holy law that you are accusing me of blaspheming, your fathers haven't once upheld it, and you haven't upheld it either. And you haven't upheld it either. And so what we need, what the people of Israel need, is we need forgiveness. We need a savior. We need a redeemer, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the righteous one. That's what we need. He's saying, you're indicting me about the holy law. You're not upholding it yourself. You're not upholding it yourself, and, and no one has. And so Stephen's on a roll. He's bringing the fire, right? He's, he's really pushing back, gets the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are squirming in their seats. And just when you think uh, Stephen's going to slow his roll a little bit and kind of calm down, he dials it up, and he amps it up. And he says, not only, not only do God's people reject God's messengers, they reject God himself. And then listen, if, if, if listen, this is, this is, please, please listen to this. You never leave your faith. You never deconstruct your faith. You bow down to another God in worship. Any, any deconstruction story that, that you're watching is someone else sending their worship some, to, uh, to another God, to a false God, because you and I are created to worship. So it's, so, so if you're ever wrestling with doubts and I, I had a, uh, not in this season, but in college, I had a ton of doubts that I wrestled with. One of the common refrains that kept me at the feet of Jesus and he kept me, I got a cool story to share, but I'm not gonna share it today, was this, was where will I go, Jesus? When I survey the pantheon of God, secular humanism or these other religions, when I survey the, you know, all these other gods I could bow down to worship, where else will I go? Jesus, you have the words of everlasting life. It's not just about leaving our faith, it's about what in the world are you running to and why are you running there in the first place? Okay, That's, that was not my notes. Okay, um, moving on. 39 through 50, we're wrapping up here. Next two hours. All right. Our fathers who refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. That's the trajectory. You, you, you turn your back on the Holy Spirit, you resist the Holy Spirit, and then you turn to Egypt. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing, watch this, this is, remember this, they were rejoicing in the works of their hands, in the works of their hands, remember that. But God turned away, and he gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during your years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Riphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And our fathers, and then, and then he shifts gears here. So he's talking about idolatry, and then he shifts gears here to talk about the tabernacle and the, te the temple. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, 
Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in God's sight and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet, verse 48, the Most High does not dwell, watch this, in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? He's quoting Isaiah 66, their Old Testament scriptures. Did not my hand make all these things? Quick side note, you can never contain the God of the living universe, right? Isaiah 66, he says, the galaxies, Milky Way is my lazy boy, okay? And where I kick up my heels, the earth is my footstool. That's my ottoman where the Lord kicks up his heels after a long day of work. That's what he's saying, right? He's quoting the Old Testament scripture saying, saying what religious idolatry loves to do is they love to contain God. Put him in a box and say, you can only go this far. And then the, the danger with religious idolatry is we use God's self-revelation of himself to us. If the transcendent, immaterial, eternal God of the universe does not first speak and does not first reveal his character and his nature to us in the scriptures, we're clueless. We're clueless, right? He is a God who's gracious and reveals himself to us, right? And the way he's revealed himself to us is that he's a lion. He's on the prowl. He cannot be contained, and the tragedy that we face in the church today is we use his revelation of himself and his word, and we use his word to put handcuffs on him. And say, so you can only go this far in the 21st century. And nowhere, there is no chapter, there is no verse from Genesis to Revelation where the Lord says in his revelation of himself that I have stopped advancing my kingdom in the power of my spirit for the glory of my son. Nowhere, nowhere, he's still on the move. His spirit is still at work. He is still speaking. Can I get amen on this? I'm all working. Can I get amen? He is still speaking. And that doesn't conflict. He has spoken here authoritatively. And any 21st century, uh, him speaking is under the authority of this. Okay, let me just say that. But he is still speaking. The Holy Spirit is still dishing out dreams and visions, church. That's what he's doing. He's still healing the afflicted, both physically and spiritually. He's still healing. Because that's the God I worship. That's the God I love. That's the God who's revealed himself in his scriptures. And religious idolatry cannot contain our living God. He is a lion. He is still on the prowl. And he's still doing mighty things. Mighty things. Mighty things. Completely lost my place in my notes. All right. What Stephen is saying here is the history of our people is not only rejecting God, but rejecting God to worship pagan gods. Verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. This is our two options in Romans 1 we see is that we either worship the created or the creator. And God's judgment to us is just giving us what we want. He's saying if those are your gods, if those are the gods you want, then go ahead and worship them right? And that's God's judgment. He sends them to Babylon. That's what we see in our text. And that's the insanity of the response of God's people in the Exodus narrative is they make something with their own hands. They go back to Egypt. And by the way, what we see in scripture is that these idols, this golden calf they made with human hands, he says, you're worshiping the host of heaven. The host of heaven, those are fallen principalities, fallen demonic entities. And so behind pagan idolatry are demonic influence and power. 
There is supernatural demonic evil out there. And often in regards to certain pagan idolatry, there are there are demonic beings that love to receive worship. One of the joys that they, that, they, that they love to do is to take praise that is only due Yahweh and take it from God's people. So every temptation you face, every attack of the enemy you face, is he's just trying to, he's just trying to get your worship. Worship us, bow down, bend your knee to us, right? And so they were making, they made this golden calf with their own hands and they bowed down and said they rejoiced in it. I can't actually repeat uh, what that actually was, the way they honored that God. It can't be because there's kids present, uh, but it wasn't good. And they rejoice in this and they worship the work of their hands. Okay, they worship the work of their hands. Idolatry, worshiping things that are created with their own hands. And then Stephen makes the application and he says this. He says this, Sanhedrin, you love the holy law and you love the holy temple and you resist the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is this, is that just as, just as, this is what he's getting at, just as your fathers, your ancestors made a golden calf and bowed down and worshiped it, you are worshiping a brick and mortar building. It's idolatry is what he's saying. You're worshiping the work of hands. You're saying this, this holy temple, like the sacred temple, that, 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 see, that was the indictment against Stephen, the holy temple, the land. Now listen, and what Stephen is doing, and what I, what I encourage us, so this is, he's saying, yes, God commanded the construction of the tabernacle. God commanded the, the construction of the temple, Moses, David, Solomon, right? This would be the place where God would dwell in the midst of his people, where his people would respond with worship and rejoicing rendered unto him, right? Verse seven of our text, I'm gonna redeem them to worship me in this place. The temple, the tabernacle is that beautiful place where heaven meets the earth and God dwells with man. And that's now the church, thanks to Jesus Christ. We are the place where heaven meets earth. God has his spirit dwelling in us and among us, the place where heaven meets earth. And what Stephen is saying is, listen, Sanhedrin, you've missed the entire point of the law and the temple. Okay, so I'm a father and I own a house and I have three kids, okay? And I love my kids. And with every, you know, I will be their father and they will be my kids and, you know, all that stuff. So every, uh, every interpersonal relationship, whether it's a covenant between a husband and a wife or father to kids, there's rules, right? What are the rules for? What's the house for in my house? My house is because I love my family and I love my kids. And the house is about me relating to them. The house is about their father shepherding them, training them up in righteousness, dwelling with them. That's what the house is about. It's about me and my kids. Now, what are the rules in the house for? The rules are in the house are so, hey, don't burn the house down, right? My kids have been turned into graffiti artists this past two weeks, and my bed frame, dining room table, you know, like, all this stuff. don't do that, right? So there's rules I give, okay? Now, what if tomorrow morning I walk down from the second floor to the first floor, and I see my two oldest daughters, five and three, they're bowing down, they're in my kitchen, burning incense and bowing down and singing out can, uh, you know, incantations to the granite countertops. My kitchen. Oh, granite countertops. We love you. Protect us. Deliver us. Thank you. These are our gods. I would go, what are you doing? Are you pagan idolaters? <laughs> don't, don't bring that mess in here. Uh, like, don't do that, right? And that's what the Sanhedrin were doing. They're worshiping the holy place with their backs as they bent their knee to this holy temple, this holy land. Their backs were turned on the Holy Spirit, the person. Now, what about the rules of the house? 
Hey, don't draw on daddy's nightstand. Don't draw on the bed frame. Don't draw on the walls. Don't draw on, you know, like, so what if my kids, they get the principles, they get the rules, and the rules are for the sake of relationship. The rules are for the sake of relationship so that we could thrive. We could thrive. I give rules because I love my kids, and I also love my house. Anyways, um, right? And what if my kids turn their backs on me, and they begin to worship the principles, and they just, just memorize. They go, and Daddy told me not to do this. 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 Right? Memorizing, 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 memorizing. And I'm sitting there and going, hey, can we hang out? Hey, can we pray? Listen, this is what I'm getting at. This is what I'm getting at. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. It's relationship. It's relationship. Jesus Christ says this. Jesus Christ doesn't say, go obey my commandments in the upper room. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. These rules are the, the, the bumper rails that God gives us for a thriving relationship with him. It's all pointing to a person, right? It's all pointing to a person. And the Sanhedrin have completely missed the point because they're, they're religious idolaters and we've all been guilty of this. We've all been guilty of this. That's what he's saying. Someone greater than the temple has come. Fullness of deity dwelt among us in Christ Jesus. And when he ascended, he poured out the Holy Spirit so the new covenant community would be the temple of the living God. And now listen. The earth is the footstool of God. And when Jesus tells us, Jesus pours out his presence, and he, he kind of, he says, yeah, this temple will be, you know, obsolete because there's a new temple coming. And he gives us his presence. And then he says, go to the ends of the earth. What is he doing? He's filling the earth with his glory, with his presence. The nations, the nations as, as God's commissioned people filled with his glory, filled with his spirit, go to the ends of the earth. We're filling the earth with the presence of God, reclaiming reclaiming what the enemy tried to take from Yahweh. That's what that's about. So now it's no longer about the temple. It's about the ends of the earth, which will now be the temple of the living God because Jesus Christ is restoring all things. The entire earth will be the place where God dwells with man. That's the commission. Wherever his presence is, that's holy ground. And he's given us his presence. So as we go to the ends of the earth and we lay down our lives for the gospel, that's what we're doing. We're reclaiming terror, saying this is holy ground. God's kingdom coming on the hearts of man. And then Stephen, just when you think he's going to dial it back, he loses this indictment, and I'll conclude with this. Verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen here, he, he just did the whole replay footage to the referees. He picked up the yellow flag of uh, blasphemy and idolatry that was thrown his way. He picked it up and he threw it right back at the Sanhedrin. And he said, you're the ones who are guilty of transgressing God's holy law because you murdered the Messiah. 
just as your fathers did, so do you. That's the key interpretive tool for our text today is just as your fathers did, so did you. Here's the whole story of what your fathers did. You're guilty. You're not the hero of the story. You're the ones who persecuted and rejected the prophets and the Lord's anointed. And then secondly, this holy temple, you don't honor this. You turn honoring this temple to worshiping it. And you're guilty of pagan idolatry, worshiping things that are made with human hands. And a threefold indictment he gives is this. One, he says you're stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. The image you get is a beast of burden. And the master is telling him to turn right, to turn right. And the beast of burden refuses, right? That ox just refuses to yield, to bend the neck in the direction the master wants to go. Uncircumcised in heart is the next indictment. And uh, circumcision was the, the covenant symbol given to, uh, to Abraham and to his descendants, right? It was an, uh, covenants have symbols, and that was the old covenant sign that you were the people of God. You were marked for God. And I was at a wedding uh, yesterday, and <laughs> it was outside, and I was facing west, and I was having a staring contest with the blazing sun, and my bald head was so hot you could have cracked an egg on my scalp and heard it sizzle. Anyways, um, I was at a wedding, and I was just blown away at uh, the vows. You know, it's good to go back to a wedding and see the vows that you made to your spouse. And then there's symbols with that vows and the ring. These rings symbolize that, like the marking of this vow. And when Stephen here says you're uncircumcised in your heart, it means this. You might be wearing a wedding ring on your finger, but there ain't no wedding ring on your heart. There ain't no wedding ring on your heart. The Lord is after your heart, not external righteousness. That's what religious idolatry is all about. I have all these external check marks, but what about your heart? Your heart loving God, being convicted over your sin because you know it grieves the Lord who's redeemed you, right? Living not for yourself, but for him. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. And then the last thing he says is resisting the Holy Spirit. You're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart, and you've been resisting the Holy Spirit. Spirit says you love and adore the place and the principles all the while you don't even know or want to know the person of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now listen, it's easy for us to, uh, to place ourselves in the narrative. What Stephen does is beautiful, filled with the Spirit of God. He reads the narrative, the Old Testament scriptures, and he places the Sanhedrin in the scriptures. You can tell if you're a religious idolater, at guilty as charged, is when you read the Bible, who are you in the story? Who are you in the story? It's easy for us to read this saying, I'm Stephen, baby. I'm at full of grace, full of spirit and power, right? You know, like, like that, that, that's easy, right? That's easy. Subconsciously, we can do that. What if we're not Stephen? What if we're the Sanhedrin, right? And the reason I say that is this. The way Stephen concludes his sermon, it's so unique to me. He talks so much about the Old Testament scriptures, and then he says, he says one thing about Jesus, essentially, and he calls him the righteous one. The righteous one. The story of God's pursuit of humanity and his covenant people is that there's, there's no one righteous. That's what he's telling the Sanhedrin is, take off the lovey-dovey glasses. We've been transgressing the law. Our fathers have. It just shows us that we need a savior. We need a mediator. We need a redeemer. His name is Jesus, the righteous one. The scriptures say that there is no one righteous in Romans. No one righteous, not one, not one. And the only hope, the only hope for stiff-necked sinners like me and 
and like you is the fact that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, perfectly bent his neck in submission to the Father. That's our only hope, is that King Jesus taking on flesh, our representative, yes, in his death on the cross, but also, yes, Jesus was our representative in his life, his perfect obedience. Where our necks were stiff and resisting God, Jesus took our place and was sent to a stiff-necked people and bent his neck in full submission to his God for the people that would murder him and reject him. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not the softening of our neck and whether we fully obey. It's the fact that Jesus' neck was bowed before the, the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he cries out, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. And how many times in our lives, just maybe this morning or this past week, where we've looked at God, whether consciously or subconsciously, when it comes to us, God telling us to love our wives and love our kids and to share our faith with our neighbors and to love him and serve him, we say, not your will be done, Father but my will be done. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost, is what he says in 1 Timothy. And so today, we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who never resisted the Holy Spirit, but was perfectly empowered and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to his Father, the one who bent his neck, the one who had a softened heart, both for the Father and both for, the, both for his enemies that he died for. And uh, the response today, I think, is this, is that the only reason we can respond to people who, myself being the foremost, uh, uh, of resisting the Holy Spirit, responding with grace is because of what Christ has first done. We simply respond. That's the gospel. We respond to God's love for us shown in Christ Jesus. And so there's some of us probably in the room today who have a stiff neck because we've been looking down in shame and condemnation. Our eyes have been fixed on our failures and our shortcomings all week. And what if, the, what if you're resisting the Holy Spirit and resisting the grace of God in that moment? And what if today the Lord is offering you fresh pardon, fresh forgiveness? He's saying, stop looking down on yourself with shame and condemnation and look up to Jesus Christ saying, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. I forgive you. Receive fresh pardon today. Go to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. Maybe maybe you're coming today and your neck is stiff because you've been looking up in proud exaltation for yourself and pride. And maybe the scriptures that uh, you need to remember is this is that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Our righteousness, we are not our mediators before God. We are not our attorneys attorneys before the living God. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Meaning that our righteousness means nothing to him. He just wants our hearts and our yieldedness. He wants our love. He wants our obedience, but it's in the context of relationship. He's after your heart. And in and, and, and any way today that our necks have been bent maybe to the, to the right, where we know the Holy Spirit gently and lowly but in love has been convicting us, hey, turn your gaze from here to here, off of maybe your work and to your wife and to loving your family. Or maybe for some of us it's turning from secret sin and turning to Jesus and living in the light. And the, the beautiful thing about uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I'll conclude with this, is the Holy Spirit convicts us and he also convinces us. There's a dual meaning 
in that Greek word there. I'm stealing this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. When the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, he doesn't condemn. He convicts us of the malady of sin, that we need a Savior. Have mercy on me, O God. We need a Savior. We're never going to measure up, but our hope and faith is external to us and the one who's measured up on our behalf, and he gives us his righteousness. He clothes us in his righteousness, okay? That's our hope. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of our sin and our need for Jesus, and then he convinces us, he convinces us of the remedy that only Jesus Christ, our hope in life and death, is only found in the Lamb of God that was slain for you and for me. So let's posture our hearts in repentance today. I'm going to give you a moment to go quiet and invite the Holy Spirit to come to convict you, to maybe show you where God and his love and his grace to you is calling you to repent today and to fix your eyes upon Jesus. It is not about this place. It is not about principles. It's about the person of Jesus Christ and your heart. He died for your heart. He died so you would know the depths of his love. That's what he's after. And if you're here today and you've never given your heart in full surrender to Jesus, would you do that today? Would you let him come and fill your heart? Would you let him come and reign and rule in your life? There is no better thing in life than giving your life to the one who laid down his life for you. True life, abundant life, eternal life, everlasting life is found in Jesus Christ. Cry out to him today and I'll wrap up with this psalm. Lord, this hymn, Lord, bend that proud and stiff-necked eye. Help me bow the head and die, beholding him on Calvary who bowed his head for me. So Father, we just come before you so grateful that you first loved us, that the story of redemptive history is your faithfulness, you staying true to your vows, to your promises, Lord, would you encourage brothers and sisters today that he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion, that he is faithful and just. He who has given us his son, if you're here today in Christ Jesus, how much more will he not give us all things? He's trustworthy. He's proven himself time and time again. In the face of our failures, in the face of our sin, in the face of our depravity, He's proven himself faithful, faithful to the end, faithful to the end. He loved, he loved you to the very end, to the point of death on a cross. So we say, thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and I pray that you would wash us clean of any uh, guilt or condemnation or shame. I pray that heads that have been uh, down uh, would be lifted high as we sing this last song in adoration and praise, feeling the the weight lifted off of their shoulders as they behold Jesus, the one who bore their sins and transgressions so that we could be forever free of the penalty and the power and the presence of sin in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We glorify your name. Amen.